Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Way of Fanoa. It's your girl. I'm back. Shouldn't have left you without some dope conversations to listen to, but it's been a lot going on. I'm sure we all have been experiencing so much as 2020 is wrapping itself up with the pandemic, this never-ending election cycle, and here we are. We are at the final end, at least to the official voting period. And I have this really great conversation with David Johns, executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, about engaging black voters, building black political power, particularly centering and focusing on queer and LGBTQIA communities. The National Black Justice Coalition was founded to and is dedicated to the empowerment of black, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer and same gender loving people including those who are living with HIV and AIDS. And you can find the links to find out more about MBJC, all the amazing work that David and team have been doing in the description for this episode. But I just wanted to get this conversation up. We had a bunch of storms here in Georgia. So David and I are talking about things happening four days and we are the night before but just understand the spirit that this interview is conducted and given in. And there's so many really good reflections and nuggets that we need to not just hear and process, but really ruminate on as we're thinking about what happens beyond the election. Tomorrow, November 3rd, is the end of the election period. It's the official in-person election day, but we have seen record turnout across the country, across demographics in terms of early voting, in terms of absentee vote by mail. We have seen youth, we have seen the elderly, we have seen black and AAPI and Latino voters and native indigenous voters. We've been seeing people show up and show out masked up when they're voting in person. And we are sending the best of energy and intention to all of our folks, regardless of the role they are playing on election day itself. And my hope is that you just enjoy this conversation, you share it and lift it up because David is really dropping some serious knowledge and preaching the good word. So I'm going to turn you over to this conversation. You don't need to hear too much more from me. Make sure that you share, 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 share. And I'm coming back soon because I have some more really great content for you. Thank you. So thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I really appreciate you taking some time. I know with less than five days, the, the they saw that there's a countdown, um, like it's like four days and like 10 hours and some 10 time. hours and 30, 27 minutes. <laughs> Uh-huh. Right. Down to New Year's instead. I, I know it is such a wild moment. Can you just talk to me a little bit about your organization and the work that you all have been doing around engaging Black voters this cycle? Yeah, happily. So I lead the National Black Justice Coalition. We're the nation's only civil rights organization that remains intentionally and unapologetically at the intersections of racial equity and LGBTQIA plus equality. I am smiling now as I say that because 
um, intersectionality has become like the word, the buzzword du jour, it's everywhere. Um, I liken it to when uh, first ter term in the Obama administration, the word that everyone used was scale, right? Like, how can you scale that? What's the scalability? That was the thing that everybody was focused on. Um, and so as long as there have been Black people, there have been Black, trans, queer, and non-binary people, right? Even before the terms existed. And one of the consequences of how um, race has been constructed and really flattened um, in the U.S. is that when people think and hear the word gay um, or LGBTQIA more generally, they think white. Um, and when they think black, they think uh, cis hat. Um, and often the thought is not conscious because of the privilege that comes with those identities. Um, and so we know that if, you know, um, black people are at the lowest rungs of a quality life indicator ladder and black trans, queer, non-binary people um, are not even on the ladder. And so a lot of our work is about um, highlighting that and then trying to shift praxis, which is a space where um, policy meets practice. That's jargon. I'm an educator. I'm also, I study how race works in schools. Um, and so that's where that work comes from. As it relates to this um, election cycle, um, we have been anxious uh, for and ready for this elections uh, since four years ago. Um, and there are three things that have been top of mind for us. One is the safety of members of our community. What we know is that um, almost four years ago, the night of the election, um, the calls to NBJC, to our partners at the Trevor Project, um, and to GLSEN from Black, queer, trans, and non-binary uh, folk, um, and young folks in particular who were anxious and scared and worried and concerned about the transition um, that we've all been living through. Um, and so we anticipate that there will be a similar increase in the calls for help and in particular the, um, to the suicide prevention hotline and for other forms of um, uh, mental uh, trauma. Um, and so that's one. Um, second is we saw uh, four years ago that there were so many members of our community who were uh, denied the right to vote or the opportunity to vote. Uh, and whether that was um, state legislatures who passed really aggressive voter ID laws that made it really difficult, if possible at all, for uh, gender non-conforming or non-binary members of our community to obtain the kinds of identification that are now required to vote, or um, it resulted in what I'm most concerned about now, which is militia, our militia in states where it's legal to um, carry a weapon, um, showing up and uh, driving uh, people, off, trying to drive people off the road, as we saw um, in Alabama, or showing up to polling places and trying to um, intimidate folks. And so that's our um, second uh, concern, just in terms, not a priority, but just in terms of this list. Um, and then the last one is ensuring that if people are risking their lives to go stand in line to go vote um, in a global pandemic, um, that poll workers and individuals responsible for um, upholding our civic process um, are trained and are culturally competent such that they don't um, cause harm or otherwise cause a member of our community to go home and not vote. So the example there is um, uh, a friend who went to go vote and a, a poll worker, uh, let's just say that they were well-intentioned. We don't want to, we don't know their, their intent, but they looked at the ID and said, um, uh, uh, this is a really nice picture. Um, and then something else that I won't say um, on this podcast, uh, but suffice it to say that the person felt really uncomfortable um, and left. They did not vote. Um, and, and the sort of the fill in the blank was a backhanded um, compliment for um, a trans woman. Um, and so all of these things, these three different examples are very much related and that they're all efforts to suppress um, votes of individuals from uh, marginalized communities. 
uh, which is incredibly important in this election because I don't think in my lifetime there has been such a clear distinction between uh, where the current administration is, uh, a reminder that uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, um, and where uh, Biden and Harris are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much right there. And I really appreciate you walking us through that. You know, oftentimes when folks do talk about a lot of these issues, and, and thank you for the little lesson on praxis and jargon <laughs> as well. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes when people do throw around these words, they sound really good, but we're not really thinking about, like you're saying, when we're talking about what does it mean to literally be at the intersection of multiple spaces and how the policies are affecting particular communities, uh, just touching on what you just talked about in terms of voter intimidation, um, voter intimidation and voter ID, voter suppression efforts, like people, you know, that's something that I, I do cover. And so a lot of times we aren't thinking about the, the, the royal we, you know, the general population talking about voter ID issues are not thinking about the challenges, the additional barriers to accessing the ballot that folks who are gender nonconforming and trans may have because of the way states are interpreting, um, you know, whether or not ID can be used, what documents are available to even change ID, et cetera. What about how you all are engaging with folks in your in the communities you serve right now yep. how what are some of the issues and challenges that people are are, 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 are reflecting on as yep. they're moving to the ballot box or if there are some things that maybe are holding people back from being able to access the ballot yeah you know these questions are really difficult to answer because it really depends on when we're talking and where we're talking about right so um what i know is that uh, it's October 29th, and thus far this year, there have been more Black trans women murdered than there have been in any year since um, uh, we started keeping track. Um, this year, we also lost Monica Roberts, the trans griot, who was one of the first people to um, assume this responsibility, which is incredibly important because too often um, trans folks, Black trans folks, femme folks, um, non-binary people, um, when they are murdered or, or are victims of hate crime, um, they're often misgendered, um, they're dead named, um, which not only delays the uh, potential of promise of justice, which is a problematic ass term for me as a black person in America, um, but it also um, inhibits our ability to talk about what's going on and to mourn them publicly. Um, and so I'm sitting in this space to highlight that the, the, the rate at which um, black trans women, femme-identified members of our community and non-binary people continue to be murdered and the, the lack of public discussion about it um, remains a concern. I would just highlight again for anyone who's not clear about what I, the point I'm trying to make, that the same week that George Floyd was murdered, um, Tony McDade, a black trans man, was murdered by the police department in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, seldom do people, uh, in, in particular, um, uh, people who have access to privilege based on their whiteness, our proximity to it, um, uh, cis folks, het folks, non-queer, trans, or binary folks. Um, um, people now reflexively know to say the name of George Floyd and talking about like this particular moment in this movement for Black lives, but seldom do people um, uh, think to uh, have been introduced to or um, have developed their tongue to be able to pronounce the names of members of our community who are also um, similarly aggrieved. Um, and so that's one. And I think the footnote there is that there are also a number of hate crimes that um, members of our community have experienced. I think about the family of McKinsley Lincoln, a uh, black gay man who was uh, shot in the head um, in uh, uh, Louisiana 
um, in a parish where his family, um, months after um, having found out about uh, him being murdered by neighbors, um, are still not getting any information from the police department, are, are sitting with the reality that, that they might never know what happened to um, their son, their brother, their loved one. Um, and those things happen too, too frequently without us acknowledging them or discussing them. So that's one. Um, the second is the way this very much connects to a previous point I made, the way that laws are continuing to be leveraged to make our life outcomes and opportunity uh, difficult to say the least. And so many people celebrated this summer that the Supreme Court of the United States passed um, a decision, uh, made a decision in the Title VII of um, a civil rights uh, election, uh, not election, excuse me, employment uh, protection provisions, which essentially says that you cannot now um, fire someone uh, based on uh, actual or perceived sex, um, sexual identity, gender orientation, or expression. And a lot of people celebrated that, and they should. It was important. However, comma, what most people forget is that you know the the, the experience that is often told of, of of the gay community is that you know white gay folks get to come out to their family. They move to a neighborhood like Hollywood, California, or, or Chelsea, New York, or Boys Town, Chicago. They get to join uh, the Stonewall League, our clubs where they draw power from that part of their identity. Most Black, queer, trans, and non-binary people, we live with other Black people. We are disproportionately concentrated in the South. And we live still to date, like this very date, in states where it is legal to discriminate against us and to not deny us access to public accommodations based on actual or perceived sexual identity, gender orientation, or expression. And so I tell people often that like it doesn't really matter if you can't fire someone if they can't actually get a job. And if you are uh, Afro-Latinx, trans woman with a disability in the South in one of these states that don't have anti-discrimination protections or that allow people to hide behind religion um, and use that as a veil for their bias or their hatred um, toward other people or their ignorance, um, the reality is that you can't get on public transportation to get to and from the job interview. Um, uh, you can't, especially uh, under Ben Carson's administration, access public housing which is often a prerequisite to be able to apply for a job. Um, uh, I could go on, right? But the point here is that there's still so many fights to be won um, for members of our community to have access to the things that too many people, white people, uh, cis hat black folks and others take for granted. Um, the last thing that I think concerns the community and is a tether through um, so many different um, approaches to this work um, is that so many members of our community um, are still having to uh, show up in spaces where they're asked to um, disentangle parts of themselves are the, the exact opposite of intersectionality. Um, and so it is still the reality that in too many places, um, Black folks are, are asked, required, are demanded uh, to hide or apologize for or shrink the queer parts of themselves. And I mean queer in the pure sense of the term. So it could be with regard to sexual identity, gender orientation or expression, um, having a disability. Uh, I, I remark often about the reality that many Black Americans have been made to have a disability um, uh, as a result of, of, of violence and, and state-sanctioned violence and oppression. Um, and the point here I'm trying to make is that there are still so many rudimentary um, challenges to our ability to simply show up, um, to walk outside, to take up space without the threat of uh, bias, stigma, or harm. Um, these are just, I, I'm thinking about all this stuff and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, trying not to be overwhelmed by the fact that there's still so much work to be done. You are such a repository of, of information and knowledge. Um, I, like, I think so often 
folks think that, you know, if they say the name or as you were pointing out, you know, they're saying some names, people just get caught up, right? And, and it's just like the most simple practice as if that's the work, like that's it. We've done our part. Justice ultimately, eventually, maybe hopefully will get served. But you've just walked us through so many different ways in which we need to be digging deeper and learning and understanding how to actually not necessarily do for others, but learn how we can be supportive in understanding what should even what should we even be advocating for in some instances. And I appreciate the way you're tying this into, you know, the considerations that people are having, like with this current administration, the public housing piece is something that, you know, I've thought about in terms of how the ways in which rules can be interpreted, depending upon people's perceptions or uh, uh, personal, you know, issues with certain groups of people can lead to folks being left out of housing. But that's shown up mostly in my own work uh, when I was in Chicago, looking at if you have like a grandmother and they have an elder teen grandchild who has done something, you know, technically illegal, that that can leave the whole family out. But the way you just brought all this home, I think really, you know, helps open our eyes to how we really need to be thinking more about what does equity look like? It's a word we use, we're starting to use more frequently, but what is what do justice and equity look like? When we're talking about electoral politics and from your own experience, you know, having served in the White House, not this White House, but having served previously in the White House, having right. done work with, with, with members of Senate, can you talk to me about what is it to bring, you know, bring about equity will bring equity and justice into this process of electoral politics so that it is actually working for the people instead of working for the interests that ultimately work against the people? Yeah, um, that's a really complex question. And so I want to um, I want to separate some things out. So first, uh, Black feminist uh, Patricia Hill Collins, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, and others talk about, um, they, they, they have this term called the matrix of domination. And they refer to signs, systems, and symbols, um, things like um, uh, gender markers on public restrooms that would otherwise be unisex, um, um, uh, policy that um, gives women who are cis and heterosexual and married certain political and economic benefits, denying um, those same political and economic benefits to other people who don't have, um, uh, who aren't married. Um, to a man. Um, these things that we take for granted um, as normal and natural and um, um, omnipresent are actually things that have been socially constructed, just like race, um, just like the way that we come to understand gender, which is related to, but is distinct from biology, right? Uh, the, one of the points that I, I often offer in this moment is a reminder that gender is assigned at birth. So many people assume that gender is natural, and it's traditional, which is why there's so much consternation when people are introduced to the term trans. Um, trans exists because of the opposite of cis. And cisness are, are people who have the privilege of identifying with the gender that was assigned to them by a doctor at birth. Um, cisness is something that people don't have to think about because of their privilege. It is normalized. It is the thing that people assume uh, everyone else should show up in in the world. And, 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 and we know that that's not true. Um, and so the first part of this is being really clear about this matrix of domination and the fact that while we often talk about blackness, uh, blackness exists as, as the opposite of, of whiteness and how whiteness not only has been constructed, 
um, as the the thing, the literal, the, the property to be most coveted in America, um, in our democratic society is whiteness, right? Like, um, um, that is a thing. And we don't talk about whiteness as a race. We don't name um, too often outside of conversations like this, the ways in which whiteness is constructed as a, as a, as a, 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 a value, a tool, a goal for people to, to wield and, and, and to possess and to deny other, other people access to. And so being clear about um, these systems and these signs and these symbols um, is step one. Step two is acknowledging that um, as long as there have been efforts to try and ensure that our country lived up to its founding promises, that not just Black folks, but Black queer, trans, and non-binary folks have been at the forefront of pushing. Um, and so we would not be in this moment and this movement for Black lives if it were for not if it were not for Black queer, trans, and non-binary people. The first person to use that the hashtag Black Lives Matter is a Black gay man named Marcus Anthony Hunter, who's a professor at UCLA, who was ruminating about all of the joy that we still try and pursue and hold on to in spite of everything that 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 happens as a consequence of whiteness and white supremacy. The, the hashtag was then popularized by three Black women, two of whom identify as queer. And they were able to do that because there were so many grassroots-led uh, uh, organizing uh, efforts by members of our community that have been happening across the country heretofore. And, and, and for me, this is really important because a lot of people looked up and felt like, oh, there's a lot of stuff going on in June and, 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 and really didn't appreciate that like June is, a, is a, a, a significant point in time, not only just because of the summer and everything that happens um, um, with regard to the changes of seasons, um, but also because that's when Marshall P. Johnson, a Black trans woman, stood up at Stonewall and resisted police violence and in that particular place, right? And so this year, as people celebrated um, uh, 50 years of, of that legacy, um, it was still lost on so many people that, that, that our streets, aside from these more recent protests, um, have always been on fire and that torch has been carried and lit by members of our community. Um, and so celebrating those folks, um, naming um, uh, uh, our leaders who, again, do this work when there's not a spotlight um, and reminding people of them and, 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 and the need to support them, um, I think is second. Um, and then the third is uh, appreciating that so much of what's happening now, uh, for me, um, can and should be sustained by necessary and meaningful policy interventions. Um, so I spent nearly a decade on Capitol Hill uh, most of my time in the U.S. Senate, uh, most of my time as the only Black man um, in that space responsible for crafting um, uh, federal policies that affect people's lives in every way from access to early childhood education programs to um, uh, K-12 education, uh, post-secondary education, HBCUs, like a lot of policy. And what I found then, and, and one of the reasons why um, I'm so honored to, to do this work, quarterback on the team at the National Black Justice Coalition, is because too often, really, really privileged white people make policies that don't affect their lives at all. They have nothing to do with the way that they show up in the world. Um, and and, and they, they codify these policies without regard for the people who are going to be impacted most. Um, I think often about having been on the Hill working on the reauthorization of the Child Care Development Block Grant and sitting in a room of 30 staffers, Republican, independent, Democrat across the country, 
all of our bosses sat on the HELP committee, which is the committee responsible for legislation under health, education, labor, and pensions, whatever that jurisdiction means um, in the Senate at that time. And not a single person outside of me knew someone who was a recipient of those grant services and benefits. And people sat comfortably with their theoretical assumptions and the relationships that they had and their bosses had and made policies that were affecting people, including my sister. And, and, and not only highlighting that as a problem and as an opportunity, but connecting the grassroots-led efforts of organizers to policy organizations and policy interventions for me is incredibly important. Just thinking about the ways in which, you know, folks are looking at combating voter intimidation and ensuring that, you know, Black communities are, are not simply heard, but, you know, that we are able to access the ballot unencumbered and, and, and come out of the process, the, the booth, so to speak, unscathed. And what you just said about like the way in which whiteness works and operates in these spaces, and even as you're talking about being on the Hill and the only one who has known someone who has benefited from the program that you're sitting there discussing and working on the reauthorization for, can you just talk to me a little bit about like, how we should be approaching now as we are four days, and I know you got the countdown going in some change from, you know, the end of this election period and the, what we're hearing about possible uh, uh, voter intimidation efforts, like how should we be balancing and preparing people for what's to come? Also recognizing the way whiteness informs and engages in whether it's, you know, law enforcement's response to issues or even the way poll workers and other other election officials are trained to take complaints seriously from certain groups of people and not others. What are some of the things that that National Black Justice Coalition and your partners are doing to help folks be prepared for this election cycle and the potential for voter intimidation? Oh my God, so much. Uh, um, I think in threes if you haven't uh, uh, figured that out. So I'll give you three three things. I love it. Um, Go keep going. I went to law school. Right? And so when we had to do opening statements and closing statements, we were uh-huh. trying to do that. So go yep. ahead. I love it. Yep. So it's the same thing, too. I had a, early on in my uh, career in the White House, a colleague who, Bernadette, uh, brilliant engineer, I was preparing for my first like official statement. And she was like, just find three things. And if you name them up front, then people can follow along and they'll hold you accountable and everybody will will feel productive at the end of the exercise. And as she said it once, and it sucks. So um, so three things that we're doing now, President, are one, uh, trying to ensure safety. So working in coalitions with organizations who can escort members of our community to and post safely. That is paramount. We have already seen uh, radical forms of voter intimidation. I just posted a video to my uh, Instagram today. I'm at Mr. David Johns uh, about some white on white violence. Uh, which is uh, a bit of a distraction from the traditional white on black violence that we see, um, but uh, again, is reflective of kind of, of the concerns that that I have and that many of us should have about the safety of people um, risking their lives in this global pandemic to go vote. Um, and so that's one. Um, the second is uh, helping to manage expectations. And again, these are in no particular order. I should have started with that. Um, and so I'm reminding a lot of people that um, while historically we have, um, I wanted to say historically, um, it is a fairly recent invention um, for us to expect uh, a result from an election on the night of an election. Um, And I've spent a lot of time reminding people that it wasn't too far 
um, in our recent past when uh, uh, Florida happened and George Bush was uh, determined by a decision that his brother, the governor of Florida made, right? Um, and so managing people's expectations such that they know that we will likely not, like there are some, some scenarios, uh, there are a couple of states we're all watching, um, but, but, but we, it is highly unlikely that we will have a clear result on the night of uh, November 3rd. Um, and we should be okay with that. We should want for the hundreds of thousands of ballots that have been mailed in um, to be counted, especially in states that do not allow for ballots to be counted until election day. Um, and so we've been messaging and talking about the reality that it's not an election day, we're in an election season. Um, and really for me, the, the demarcation of the time is November 3rd through um, inauguration, so January uh, 2021. Um, and that's the period that we'll have to continue to watch and have to continue to assure safety because the sad reality is based on where we are with the lack of comportment um, associated with this administration. There's going to be some shit uh, either way, right? If Biden and Harris win, um, there are going to be people, including the Proud Boys, who um, he who shall not be named told to stand by, um, who are going to um, uh, kick up some ruckus. Um, and if, um, if for whatever reason, they are able to uh, lie, cheat, and steal their way into another four years, um, there, there is and should be some, some shit in that regard as well. Um, and so again, thinking about um, uh, just where we are as a country in this moment um, and, and planning for um, collective safety um, and um, uh, also providing resources for folks to heal is incredibly important. So I don't know if this is like 2.1 or like a sub bullet or if it's actually three, but we're doing a lot of work around mental health. Um, I think I might've mentioned this before, uh, but four years ago, there was an increase in the number of calls um, to uh, suicide prevention lines. Um, and we're expecting that that's going to happen as well. Just last year, the National Black Justice Coalition led in the production of a report that was submitted to Congress um, through the Congressional Black Caucus and a task force that was established by New Jersey Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman um, to acknowledge the sad reality that in the last two decades, the suicide rate for Black youth has increased. It's doubled. Um, and that in and of itself is astounding, but when you contextualize that with the reality that for every other group of children based on race or ethnicity, it's decreased, we should all be especially concerned. Now, we don't collect data, intersectional data, on students in schools. Um, and so I can't tell you how many, with any fidelity rather, um, how many Black, queer, trans, and non-binary students show up and, and face these challenges, but, but if we approximate based on the increase in hate crimes based on race and increase in hate crimes based on LGBTQIA status, the confluence of those two, two things should suggest to us that members of our community are going to fare worse than everybody else. And so working with the American Association of Black Psychologists and the Trevor Project and the task force that was established around the leadership of Bonnie Watson Coleman to ensure that Black folks have access to culturally competent medical professionals is incredibly important. It is too often the case that medical professionals are not trained in anything intersectional. Most of them are, are usually experts at one form of trauma um, and, and having a skin that's been kissed by the sun um, in a country um, where race continues to be the, the, the enduring problem um, makes it such that uh, we show up with multiple challenges and, and fighting wars on multiple fronts. Um, and so increasing the pipeline of qualified and competent mental health providers and then ensuring that members of our community have access um, is incredibly important. And, and right, like it's still a joke in too many communities that therapy is for white folks. 
um, and that talking about emotions makes men, um, uh, not men. Um, and so there's a lot of work that we are doing to decrease stigma um, and increase access to the kinds of supports that we know allow people to be happy, healthy, and whole. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. As a mom of two older teenagers, 16 and 19, we have had many a conversation about mental health. And I'm very, very thankful that we've been able to exist in our little family ecosystem in that way. So I really do appreciate you lifting up because it's unfortunate that that is still something that is, you know, flippantly said, but unfortunately often to our detriment. And especially in this moment, while we're still dealing with all this that's going on politically, but then also the ongoing pandemic. And, you know, some folks have been reacting to decision this week at the Supreme Court. So there's just like so much we're, we're, we're getting in through the feed on top of the regular things that we're managing in our daily lives. As we wrap up, Jess, I know that y'all have worked together on the turnout um, with the Your Voice, Your Power, Your Vote campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just even the Reclaim the Your Vote effort with BET in the Urban League earlier this fall. Um, so as we close out, just like are, are any final thoughts you have about Black voter turnout or, or, or like not taking Black voter turnout for granted. I think there's a lot of, you know, conversation and speculation about whether or not Black voters will do X, Y, and Z based on the shock folks got from 2016. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes there isn't enough consideration for many of the institutional barriers and challenges that Black voters and, you know, other voters in, in, in you know, related to our communities go through. So, I mean, I just, final thoughts you have on like the campaign, anything else that you think is important to lift up? Listen, I'm still uh, resting in the reality that I'm weary. I tell people often that I vacillate between um, Beyonce's uh, freedom and Solange's weary in part because Mm. there's so many battles that we have had to endure. And there's so many like, you know, well-meaning white folks and black folks, to be quite honest, and, and Afro-Latinx folks and non-black and white folks. Again, I don't want to just talk in the ways in which things have been flat, but there are so many people that just got politicized and just started to wake up this June. And my reality is that uh, many of these battles, um, myself and others have been waging for decades. Some of them have been going on for longer than I have been alive. And if there's one thing that I continue to say, and I hope that people hear my heart when I say it, is that we have to take care of ourselves. I find myself often now uh, remembering uh, when I used to take for granted the moment when uh, the flight attendant would say, you know, in case of an emergency, an oxygen mask is going to fall from the sky. And, you know, you should put yours on before you help uh, anyone else to secure their mask. And and, and what I know, uh, having been loved on by Black women, um, having been loved on and protected by Black trans women, Um, having been the beneficiary of people who still to this day conspire for my success is that we often don't know how to take care of ourselves, especially in periods of emergency. And this is one of them. I've never experienced anything like this in my my lifetime. And so if there's something I hope people hear beyond the importance of voting, beyond the opportunities to engage in policy entrepreneurship, beyond the a call that I hope everyone hears to consider running for office or holding elected officials accountable or moving them the hell out of the way when they don't act in ways that are responsive or responsible. 
I want people to do whatever is required so that they can thrive. Um, and in particular to the, the, the place where we just were thinking about your babies at 16 and 19, right? Like they're watching you and looking to you for cues on how to like live through all of this and make sense of it and, and survive it. And if we aren't able to model wellness, then there's no way, way in hell we can expect our babies to, uh, to be well. And so I want people to do whatever that looks like for them that's healthy um, and that's productive. I hope that a part of that includes having a plan to vote if you haven't already. Um, if you have voted, then have a plan to help ensure that if five other people vote um, safely, um, that plan should include how to hold folks accountable after um, election season, because that's, that is but one important part in a much larger process. Um, and I, again, I'm not saying this with an assumption that it's easy. Um, if it were, everybody would be doing it. Um, if it were um, really, really resource and really, really rich, uh, people would be paying uh, lobbyists and advocacy organizations um, to help do this work for them. And to want people to know that uh, we, the National Black Justice Coalition, exists as a resource. Um, NBJC.org has a GOTV um, uh, uh, toolkit that, that lists all of the partners, uh, a couple that you mentioned, um, including BET and Sony. Um, and then the National Urban League, and then a number of others. And whatever the issue that matters to you most, whether it's education um, or healthcare um, or housing or um, access to public accommodations, there are ways in which we are attempting to advance um, policy and practice, or again, praxis um, in ways that are responsive to it. And so I hope that people will take me up on the invitation um, to allow us to be a resource um, for them in whatever way um, it's both helpful and makes sense. Awesome. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. And y'all, the links to the organization and everything else David has been talking about in this conversation are in the description of this episode. David, I really appreciate you again for making time. And we will have to check touch base after the next what is it, four days and like nine hours and 27 minutes? <laughs> Just make sure you have your, yes. I, I, I'm not going to tell people about my self-care plan. We'll talk about it on the back end. We'll talk about it on the back end because as David just said, y'all, this is only like one part of the overall cycle and process. And we're talking about being civically and politically engaged. Showing up and voting is just an initial step that we can take. David, thank you so very much. And I look forward to talking with you again soon.